This message ends rather abruptly. In fact, only two minutes are missing as the actual tape ran out during the Bible study. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we've been able to come and worship you. Thank you, Lord, that, <coughs> that you're here with us. And Father, we, we pray now that you'll speak to us out of your word. Lord, we pray that it will be a life-changing word because, oh Lord, that's what you've given us the Bible to do, to change our lives through the Holy Spirit and his power. And Lord, I pray that you'll really direct our thoughts tonight. And Lord, that you'll really bless it and anoint it because we ask it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> right, well, tonight we come to the third of the priorities that we have as a church. We've seen what they are, that first of all, our number one priority <coughs> is to the Lord. That comes first, or rather, He comes first. Following that, our second priority is to each other in the family of God, in the church. And we've seen that only thirdly, only when those two are kind of sorted out and in place, only then do we have a responsibility towards the world? Now, this doesn't mean that the world is left out. I'm not giving here anyone an excuse to say, well, we can stay so busy on the first two that we can kind of conveniently forget this one. I'm not saying that at all. But we're simply saying all three of these priorities must be working amongst us, but they've got to be in the right order. And so what we come to tonight is the first of the two aspects of our commitment and our responsibility as the Church of Jesus to the world, to the people who are as yet not in the family. We know that in Jesus, God came to serve the world. God loves the world. John 3.16, God so loved the world. And in Jesus, not only did God love the world, but he came to serve the world as well. And that must be absolutely true of us. We must be in service to the world, in service to the unbelievers around of us. And the first of the two aspects that we're going to deal with tonight is evangelism. And that immediately we've got to understand that one of the prime reasons that God has got us here, one of the prime reasons for God coming up with the idea of the church in the first place, is so that his people could preach the gospel. So tonight, that's what we're dealing with, evangelism. Let's start very, very basically. First of all, we say we've got to preach the gospel. Let's look at those two words, preach and gospel. Let's take nothing for granted. Gospel, as I'm sure you all know, it simply means good message or good news. All right. So that is what the word gospel means. And let's remind ourselves of exactly what the gospel is. It'd be quite interesting, actually, because... If you sort of kind of got loads of Christians together, or say I went round the room tonight, and I said, what is the gospel that you've got to preach? I'm sure that we'd have 20 different answers. And indeed, you know, looking at some evangelism that goes on, you can come up with 50, 60, 70 answers to that question, what is the gospel that we preach? And of course, if we want to understand the gospel that we have got to preach to unbelievers, then we do it by looking in the Bible and seeing how the early church did it. And what I'm going to say is quite simply this, the gospel that we preach is Jesus. Let's see this, I think you'll be surprised. 
Go to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. Again, we're going to be all over the place tonight. If I'm going too fast, don't bother finding it. Just I'll be reading out each verse. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. And Paul says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what Paul preached. He preached Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Go over to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 16. He says that God was pleased to reveal his Son in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Who's him? The Son God revealed in Paul, Jesus. That's the gospel Paul preached. He preached Jesus. Go to Acts. Acts chapter 8. This is just in case you ever end up going out there preaching atonement and propitiation and expiation. I'll tell you what, leave that till they've got converted. <laughs> Alright? Now then, Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Look at this. And this is Philip. Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Can you see? They were preaching Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Go to verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. That's what they were preaching. Go to chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, in verse 20. And this is immediately after Paul became a Christian, Paul the Apostle. And in the synagogues, immediately, he proclaimed Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. Go to Acts chapter 11 and verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And it's funny actually, the, in the New Testament you don't get the language of kind of Christians saying we're preaching the gospel. That isn't what they talked about. It was, we're preaching Jesus. Can you see? Where we would say, let's go out and preach the gospel. The early church said, let's go out and preach Jesus. Can you see? They just kept it that bit much more specific. And I've heard evangelistic sermons from various people that have been very, very clever. There's no doubt about it. But somehow, it's been something other than Jesus. They've mentioned Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus becomes secondary to the theological point they're making in their evangelism. The thing is, preach Jesus and the theology that unbelievers need to hear will take care of itself. Go over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. And in verse 14. And Paul says, For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. We were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. So that is the gospel that we are called to preach. We are here to preach Jesus, to tell the world about Jesus. Right, gospel. Preach. What does the word preach mean? In actual fact, in the Bible, preach is the translation of two separate Greek words that both get translated preach means something slightly different. There's euangelizo, and that's the word where we get evangelism from, and that just means to preach the gospel. But the other Greek word that sometimes gets translated to preach is kurusso. 
And Caruso in the Greek, it means to proclaim, to herald, or to publish. The idea of publishing abroad, a herald, a proclaimer. If you go to Romans 10, we'll actually find a verse where Paul uses both of those different Greek words. In Romans 10, and we'll start reading at verse 14. He says, How are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And that's Caruso, without a herald or a proclaimer. How can men preach, Caruso again, how can men proclaim unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And that preach good news is Evangelizo. all right? And that really, when you put them together, preaching the gospel and Caruso, meaning to publish abroad, or to be a herald, or a proclaimer. The idea that you've got in the Greek is that of the town crier. A Caruso was a town crier. We had them in old England, didn't we? In fact, there are some places in England today where every now and then, for the sake of tradition, they bring them out. And the point was they didn't have wireless, they didn't have television. And it's like, if a major event had been, ha you know, happened, I mean, sort of, say, the Germans had invaded and Britain had lost, or something like that, or the Normans invaded Britain and Britain lost, the point is, all the Britons in Britain didn't know about it. Can you see? And so, what would happen was there was a system of town criers, and they get the news and they go into the centre of the town or the village, they'd ring the bell and that was the sign that an important announcement was going to be made and so the town crier would say whatever it was like, you know, sorry lads, we've just been invaded and beaten by the Normans so there's going to be some changes. Can you see? But that is the idea. Someone who lets the whole community know that he's got a message of some import and of course the message as we've seen is Jesus himself. But one of the things that we need to understand as well about when the Bible talks about preaching the gospel and proclaiming Jesus is that it in no, ways li in no way limits itself to, what I, to the actual preaching of actual evangelists. It's a big mistake to leave evangelism to the evangelists. Each one of us are called by Jesus to be telling people about Jesus, and we'll be back to that very, very shortly. But first of all, I want us to follow this line of, of thought. If we're here to tell people about Jesus, then that assumes that we are having meaningful contact with unbelievers. Wouldn't it be a preposterous idea if unbelievers only ever heard the gospel from strangers? Wouldn't that be ridiculous? So therefore, the whole thrust of what the Bible teaches about evangelism, it assumes that we are having meaningful contact with unbelievers. You know, there are many, many Christians who make the mistake that when they've been converted for a while, they end up moving in exclusively Christian circles. Now, that is, it's harder for some than others. I mean, for instance, say for someone in my position, by definition, because my work is amongst Christians, my contact with unbelievers is a limited affair. But then on the other hand, people who are kind of full-time Bible teachers are always going to be a minority of people in the church. Because obviously most of the believers in a church are going to be out there in society working alongside with non-Christians. But it's a tremendous tremendously bad mistake when you end up cutting out all your non-Christian friends from your circle and you end up 
only having Christian friends. Now, there are some Christians that they say, oh no, I don't move in exclusively uh, kind of uh, Christian circles. I do a lot of evangelism. But the thing is, they're talking about the type of evangelism which is purely to strangers. I'm okay, get out on the street and preach, no problem. But that isn't the meaningful contact with unbelievers that the Bible is presupposing that we're supposed to be having. I, what I'm saying is that when people become Christians, they must, they must make sure that they don't move out of the world in any way at all. Go to John 17. The prayer of Jesus. John chapter 17. If you find verse 15, and this is Jesus praying to the Father. He says, I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. To become a Christian isn't to exit the world, in fact quite the opposite, it's to be sent back into the world with a vengeance, because now you have a message to give to the world. So that what we're saying here is that obviously as believers we are supposed to be in the world, but not of it. There's a profound difference. Any idea of trying to escape from the world? This is the fundamental error of things like monasticism. Can you see? I mean, what good is it? Okay, you can pray if you're a monk. But Jesus doesn't want his people kind of escaping the world. Quite the opposite. He wants them in there being the salt of the earth. And indeed, there's you know, a real movement amongst so many Christians today towards a real heavy kind of community. You know, the Christian communism, everyone living in communities. And you see, the great danger of them is that they can turn into a monastic existence. Can you see? Sealed off from the world and the influences of the world. That's absolutely wrong. We're not supposed to be sealed off from the world. We're supposed to be in the world, declaring and living out the message of Jesus in the world, although not of it. But the trouble with the Christian coteries that so many believers end up in is that those Christian coteries are of the world but they're not in it and that is exactly the opposite to what God has called us to actually be. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 let's see what Paul's assumptions were about the uh, believers that he looked after. 1 Corinthians 5 Verse 9, and here he's correcting a misunderstanding, alright? He'd written to them because they had a few people in the Corinthian church who really ought to have been kicked out of the church because their lives were out of order morally. And they'd, they'd got it wrong, they'd misunderstood. And he's correcting their misunderstanding. And in verse 9 he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral men. Not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But rather I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of immorality, greed, etc., etc. Now what had happened was, the Corinthians got the wrong end of the stick. And they thought, well as Christians, we exactly as usual, the good old <laughs> Corinthians. And the, what they thought is, oh yeah, right, well now we're Christians, Paul's telling us that we mustn't have anything to do with people who are into sin, you see. And Paul wrote, he says, no, you've got exactly 
wrong. Yeah. I told you that you mustn't be in fellowship with believers who are into unconfessing. But he says, you can't evade the world. He said, otherwise, you'd have to go out of the world. And Paul didn't want that. So therefore, we can see that Paul expected the Corinthians to still be in there with the non-Christian friends and society that they were in before they actually became Christians. Go over to chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is where Paul's dealing with things general to do with food and eating. And it's the context in which he's talking about the love feast. But he's dealing with Christian, Christians and food in general. And in verse 27 he says this, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So there, Paul is assuming that the Corinthian Christians would be at dinner parties with unbelievers. Can you see, Paul is assuming that that contact with unbelievers is still absolutely there. And the rule for all of us is this. Assuming that it isn't corrupting you. Now that's very important. Because it is true that bad company spoils good morals. That is absolutely true. But assuming it isn't corrupting you Stay in with your non-Christian friends. Don't desert the church. <laughs> you know, don't, don't stop having fellowship. No, because it's having fellowship and being part of a church that strengthens you so you can go out and do this. But the rule is that assuming that they're not dragging you down, stay in with your non-Christian friends. There will be times when God says, no, that, those people, they're not for you. No problem. If God says it, you stay away. But the principle is that unless God tells you to the contrary, and unless it's ruining your life in a moral or spiritual sense, stick in there with your non-Christian friends. At work, don't start hiving off at lunchtimes, every lunchtime, reading the Bible. Because what a valuable chance to get down the pub with your work friends or to go to a restaurant with your work friends. I'm not saying never read the Bible at work, but the point is that often Christians, what happens is that they end up totally isolated from the very unbelievers that they work with. Because as soon as there's a chance to talk with them and get to know them, the Christians are reading their Bibles. Well, you can do that when you get home, can't you? Can you see the point? And the tragedy is that there are many Christians who read their Bibles and ignore the unbelievers they work with all the way through lunch break, and then they try and witness to them when they ought to be working. And that is a bad witness to your employers. In fact, that is wrong because you owe your employer your work. Your employer isn't paying you to preach the gospel. So therefore, stick in with non-Christians as much as you possibly can. Another thing as well is this. Make sure you hang on to your own cultural identity. Can you see what I mean? Don't change into the Christian kind of thing. Make sure that you're hanging on to your own cultural identity to the extent that it isn't going against the Bible. Now, can you see the importance of that? Be yourself and stick in culturally with how you were before you became a Christian to the extent that that isn't going against the Bible. I mean, it's like, for instance, the Bible says that for blokes shouldn't have long hair. 
blokes shouldn't have hair that looks like women's hair, alright? So if your culture includes having hair that looks like a woman, alright, then that part of your culture, just, just trim the old hair, can you see? Stick with the rest of it, but just be kind of in conformity to what the Bible says. Or on the other hand, if for you ladies, someone has been in a culture where it's all the very kind of short-haired and manly look, again, for those ladies, grow your hair long, get the feminine look, but apart from that, remain in that culture that you're in. I mean, it boils down to this. Men shouldn't look like Def Leppard. Christian men shouldn't look like Def Leppard, all right? And Christian ladies shouldn't look like Annie Lennox. Have you got the idea? But apart from those kind of extremes, remain the cultural product that you naturally were before you became a Christian. Obviously, for instance, it goes without saying that no one should be dirty or smelly. You know, obviously. Now, some, some people, before they become Christians, they are. But when you become a Christian, obviously, cleanliness and things like that is part of it. I'll give some examples. If you're a biker, if there's a biker listening to this tape, if you're a biker, all right, hell's angel, then what you've got to do is remove the skull and the crossbones off your jacket, get rid of the neo-Nazi studs, get rid of all the occult stuff, all right, and replace them with Heaven's Angel studs. Can you see, there are many, many bikers who've got converted, who've done, you know, who've done just that. Get and have a, yeah, that's right, for bikers, have a bath as well. But can you see the point? It doesn't mean that you've got to stop being a biker, but that you must remove from your biker culture anything and everything that will be offensive to other people and to God himself. And of course it goes without saying that assuming the Lord okays it, keep the Harley. No problem there. The Lord loves Harleys. Now then, so punks. Now, there are, there, there are lots of punks who get converted. Do punks have to stop being punks? All right. Now, let me say this. If God wants a punk to stop being a punk, and if God wants a biker to stop being a biker, then God will show them. It would be absolutely wrong for any Christian to say you've got to stop being a punk. And you see, if God wants them to, fine. But what we're saying is, whatever your culture is, keep it, but make sure that there's nothing in it that is dishonouring to God. So for punks, be a punk by all means, but no razor blades and hooks through the nose and ears. Easy. So that you can still be a punk without the razor blade through your nose. You can still be a punk without the hook through your ear. But, for instance, those things would have to be removed. So it's very clear that you're a Christian punk. You're a punk who's honouring God and not into all the really nasty, nasty stuff. So what we're saying is this, that really when it comes to culture, keep your culture, but remove from it anything that I would say is morally outrageous. That is the point. Anything that is morally outrageous would have to be removed. Now once you've done that, there is still plenty of scope for individuality, there is still plenty of scope for fashion. What we're saying is we've got to kind of avoid the extremes, all right? So, for instance, Christian men don't have to have short back and sides. I haven't got short back and sides, and you wouldn't catch me dead in short back and sides. No. But on the other hand, don't go around looking like Dev Leppard. <coughs> Can you see? That's the idea. Just don't go to extremes, or for the ladies. 
All right. You don't have to have the kind of essential kind of what I call brethren hairstyle, really horrible and blech, as they, you know, done up in the bun or anything like that. But keep your hair long, but keep it modern. But just don't become like Annie Lennox, who walks around looking like she's a man. Can you see? Avoid the extremes. And talking of extremes and fashion, flares are coming back, lads. So I'm, I'm, re I'm really pleased about that. The Lord loves, loves flares. And again, <laughs> and again, while we're on this, don't assume that every LP from 1957 onwards is satanic and chuck them all out. Don't make that assumption. I mean, yeah, there have been some LPs since 1957 that are satanic. By all men, chuck them out. But the point is, don't go over the top. Really what we're saying, when someone becomes a Christian, it is totally wrong when they are pressured by other Christians to kind of change their tastes, their culture, their identity, their personality, that is absolutely wrong. No believer has the right to pressure another believer in that way. If God wants to sort them out in those areas, fine, then he can. It's not for us to do. But all I'm saying is the extremes, obviously. If it's a biker, stop being a hell's angel, be a heaven's angel, can you see? But don't necessarily stop being a biker, i.e. remain yourself. Whatever you do, don't become a CSCCC, all right? Ah, yes, now you don't know what a CSCCC is. A Christian subcultural charismatic clone. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't become one. Because I'll tell you, there are a lot of Christians out there, and that is what they want for you. They want you in uniform. They want you on the parade ground, marching to their cultural tune. Resist that. Be yourself. Okay, right. Now, moving on, we're talking about evangelism. And, of course, our responsibility in evangelism or spreading the gospel always happens on two levels. And both these levels have to be there. If one isn't, you're wasting your time. And the two levels are this. As believers, in our evangelism, we've got to speak the gospel. We've obviously got to tell people the gospel, so they're speaking. But also, we've got to be living the gospel. This is very basic, but it's very easy to overlook it. You see, unless we are living the gospel, our speaking the gospel is going to be to very little avail indeed. In fact, more than that, no one is better than non-Christians at seeing through Christian hypocrisy. They will spot it a mile off. And there is nothing more nauseating to a non-Christian than a Christian who's trying to get them to become a Christian when the non-Christian can see that the Christian rock bottom is no different from himself. The world finds that absolutely nauseating. We've got to speak the gospel, but we've got to be living it as well. Go to 2 Corinthians 3, something that Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on your hearts to be known and read by all men. 
and you know that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, what Paul is saying there, he says, look, you Corinthians, you are a letter that Jesus has written to the world. You see, the truth of the matter is that you and I are the only Bible that most people are ever going to read. Non-Christians, by and large, don't pick their Bibles up and read them. But all your non-Christian friends need to be reading the Bible. So how are you going to do it? Are you going to pester them to read the Bible? No, no, no. Be yourself a Bible that they can be reading. Can you see? Because as our lives are more and more being brought into conformity to what Jesus wants for us, then unbelievers are going to be able to read the truth of Jesus in our lives quite as clearly as if they were reading it written in the Bible. But that is only going to be the case if we are living consistently with what we are actually saying to them. So, for instance, let's say your Christian circle are particularly dishonest, all right? I mean, you know, different non-Christians have different kinds of sins that really sum them up. Now, if you're in with a crowd, all right, who are dishonest, if you are dishonest too, don't bother to tell them about Jesus. You're doing more harm than good. You won't win them for Jesus. They'll just call you a hypocrite, and they'll be right. Um, if your friends are into immoral lifestyles, well, if you are, don't bother to preach the gospel. If your friends have filthy mouths, cursing, swearing, blaspheming, well, if they hear that from you, they're not going to be impressed. Can you see? We've got to be showing that our lives are being consistent. If your friends, your non-Christian friends are crooks, if you're a crook, don't bother to witness to them. Can you see? Now, what I am, I am not now saying that we cannot preach the gospel unless our lives are morally perfect. No, of course not. None of our lives are. But what I'm saying is, there's all the difference in the world between a Christian who is carrying on in sin with a blasé attitude, being one of the lads, and a Christian who is in repentance of sin. Can you see? So the point is, if you're in with a crowd who've got a filthy mouth, well, if you're just carrying on with your filthy mouth just like they are, as I say, you're disqualifying yourself. But I'm not saying that you might never slip but if you do, you're going to make sure that they see your repentance as well. Can you see what I mean? They're going to make sure, you're going to make sure that they can see that you're struggling with these things. Can you see? That you're not just giving in to them. In other words, make sure that your friends can see the repentance in your life all the time. Because after all, what are we talking about in evangelism? We are sinners who are showing other sinners where they can find forgiveness. We're not people who say our lives are together and your life can be together. I mean, yeah, there's a sense in which that's true, but primarily we're telling them about God's grace. But remember, they can only come into God's grace through repentance of sin. So make sure that they're seeing your honesty about your sin. Can you see how important that is? Otherwise, they're just going to be 
be labelling you a hypocrite, alright? And that for the rest of this study and the stuff that we're going to cover, it is all based on the assumption that each one of us are substantially living in faithfulness to Jesus in repentance for our sins, struggling with our sins, when we fall, getting right with God. That has got to be the assumption, because as I say, if that isn't true of a Christian, then they might as well save their breath and not bother to witness. But we're going to continue from this point onwards on the assumption that we are being faithful to the Lord as best we are able to. Let's, let's actually now get evangelism in perspective, spiritually, because it's tremendously important. The most important thing that you and I can do for anyone is to bring them to Jesus. Is to bring them into salvation. That is the greatest thing that anyone can do for anyone. And we need to hold that very much in our minds. It is the greatest thing you can do for someone. Because when you allow the Lord to use you, to be telling people about him, what you're doing is you're showing them the way to escape eternity in the lake of fire. That is how serious this evangelism business is. Can you see? And also, don't be afraid to mention the lake of fire. Don't draw back and be hesitant about talking about eternity in the lake of fire. Jesus actually said more than any other character in the Bible about the lake of fire. And I'll tell you, you'll hear from some Christians such twaddle They'll say things like, well, no, stay off, of, stay off of the lake of fire, stay off of damnation, bring across the message of Jesus' love. Now, I want to bring across the message of Jesus' love, but how does that preclude the lake of fire? And you see, the thing is that what they're getting wrong is they're saying, no, not the lake of fire, Jesus, the love of Jesus. When what they're failing to realise is that Jesus spoke more about the lake of fire than any other character in the Bible. Let's actually see just an example of it. Go to Matthew, Matthew 13. I mean, was, was Jesus too loving to confront people with the reality of the lake of fire? Matthew 13, and in verse... Find verse 40. And he's talking about the end times, and he says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and throw them into the furnace of fire. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. Now, this is the kind of thing that if you preach this nowadays, Christians look at you disapprovingly. I wonder if they would have dared look at Jesus disapprovingly when he was doing it. Go up to uh, verse... Uh, verse 49, that's right. And again, he says, So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. We must never balk or dodge the lake of fire in our evangelism. And I'll tell you why. 
if we are going to be coming to the world or trying to get the message into the world that Jesus saves, then don't you think it might be sensible to put at least a little word in about what he saves from? Can you see? The idea of salvation, if salvation isn't from something, is ridiculous. And if I was a non-Christian and someone came up to me and said, and said Jesus saves, that is a meaningless thing that he said to me until he's told me what it is that Jesus saves from. And ultimately, the point about becoming a Christian is that Jesus died on the cross to save us from an eternity in the lake of fire. And I'll tell you, an evangelism that holds back on that point that those who die without Jesus spend eternity physically in a physical, literal lake of fire, any evangelism that doesn't include that is quite frankly nonsensical. And certainly intelligent unbelievers are going to see through it. Don't fear to mention the lake of fire. I'm not talking about trying to sort of, you know, sort of morbidly frighten people into the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about that, but my goodness, let, let's preach them the whole gospel. And in fact, it was only it was about four years ago when Blinder and I lived in Swaffham, there was one, one particular Sunday, we never had much to do on a Sunday, so it was great, you know, and, uh, but one particular Sunday, in one day, there were two world-known Christian leaders on television, and they were in quite separate programs. The two programs were nothing to do with each other whatsoever, all right? And one of them in the afternoon was, again, I'm talking about, uh, you know, a, a world leader amongst the charismatic movement, all right? And he was being interviewed for half an hour. And then later on, there was a kind of interview on a separate program with a world-famous evangelist, all right? And what was interesting was this. The guy who was on in the half an hour interview, the, you know, the leading, you know, a leading figure in the charismatic movement, he was challenged, he was asked about hell by the interviewer and he refused to be drawn on that subject. Now, I know that he is a Bible-believing man, but he refused to say on television what the Bible says about the lake of fire, and he refused to answer. And I'll tell you, he made an ass of himself. Because I'll tell you, the millions of odd unbelievers who were watching that simply saw someone who didn't have the courage of their convictions to come clean about what they believe. And I'll tell you why. Because he was thinking along this line, if I, if I let on what the Bible says about eternity, that's going to be too heavy, I'm going to put my audience off. Well, that didn't stop Jesus preaching the lake of fire. And I'll tell you, that, that it was really incredible. And then later on that night, the same thing happened with this evangelist who was doing a national, you know, splashed in the media all over at that particular time, one of these national crusades, and a reporter was trying to get him to answer the question, is hell a literal place? And the evangelist refused to answer. Refused to answer. Now, and I'm talking about Bible-believing men, and then it was only two weeks ago on the Terry Wogan show, and in one or two other interviews that he's been in, that Billy Graham has been quick 
to let people know that he doesn't think that the lake of fire is a literal place. Now, this is what we're up against. This is the compromise. I mean, Billy Graham, he's, he believes in hell, but all he'll say is it's separation from God. Now, yeah, it is separation from God, but that is a cop-out answer. Can you see what I mean? It doesn't sound too bad to unbelievers, does it? And it's not giving them the chance. Jesus didn't balk this, and we must make sure that we don't either. We've got to go against this wretched spirit of compromise that is in the church today. So that puts evangelism in perspective. Those people out there are heading for an eternity in the lake of fire, quite literally for eternity in suffering and torment that we cannot even begin to imagine. That puts evangelism in perspective and God wants to use you and I to bring them to Jesus so they have their chance at least to escape from going there. So that gets evangelism in the perspective that we need. It's vitally important. But now, in talking about evangelism, we've got to take our personalities and characters into account now. And we've got to do this because we're all different. This, this is very important. Not everybody, far from it, not everybody has what I call a slap someone on the back and tell them about Jesus type ministry. Uh, not everyone has a door-to-door evangelism ministry. Many have. And for any believers who have a slap someone on the back and tell them about Jesus calling, do it. Praise the Lord, do it. God's called you to do it, then go and do it. But you see, the thing is that not everyone is going to have that same calling. If you have got that type of thing, then, from the Bible, we can simply say this, you are obviously an evangelist. And we've got to stop thinking of evangelists purely in terms as the full-time public speaker. I agree that, yeah, some evangelists are going to do that as their job. And some evangelists are going to home in on public speaking. All right, yeah, no problem, preaching, if you like. But we mustn't think that every evangelist is called to that. There are many people who are evangelists who aren't full-time and they don't have a preaching ministry. But my goodness, wherever they go, they're leading people to Jesus. All right. So if you've got the ministry of evangelists, you dive in and you do it. But you see, the thing is, in Corinthians, Paul specifically says, are all evangelists? No. Therefore, this is why I'm saying that we've got to take our different characters and personalities and calling into account. And it is always very, very dangerous when churches or Christians try to pressure <coughs> believers to be doing things that those believers aren't actually called to do. Um, I mean, there, there are some churches that their emphasis 
is kind of getting out there on the streets. You know, I mean, every every evening, every Saturday morning, every Saturday afternoon, every Saturday night, it's evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. Now, if a church is, is really called to that, fine, they've got to go for it. But what they mustn't do is to try and pressure everyone in that church to be doing the same thing. There are some believers that if you say, right, now I want you to go out and do door-to-door work, they just couldn't do it. And yet you say, oh yeah, but if, if, if you were committed, you would. And you're putting them in such terrible bondage. I mean, it might be a bit like me saying, right, you're doing the Bible study next week and I want an anointed one. <laughs> Can you see how ridiculous that would be? But there's a danger that churches do that to believers when it comes to evangelism. And I remember some time ago, Belinda and I went to see some friends. We went for a meal. And uh, the particular church that they were going to at that time, I think they still do, was very much that type of church. The emphasis was out there on the streets preaching the gospel. And it rather tended to be that if you were a committed Christian, you would be too. Can you see? There was no allowance that you can be a committed Christian without wanting to be out on the streets all the time telling people about Jesus. Now, what happened was they had some uh, two or three young people, well, not young, in mid-twenties, from their church, along with another guy who was going to the church but wasn't a Christian yet. So they were working on him so that he would become a Christian. No problem, I was with them as they were working on him. Yet the real problem for that non-Christian, and you could see it, they couldn't, but I could see it so clearly. He wanted to become a Christian. I mean, he was convinced of the gospel. He knew that he needed Jesus. But he knew as well that if he became a Christian, you see, this is what he thought, he was being misled by this church. He thought that to become a Christian meant he would have to be out on the streets with them all the time, and he was terrified of doing it. He was absolutely terrified of doing it, and he was actually holding off becoming a Christian. Because he said, well, I can't commit myself because I could never do that. And what they were doing... They were working on him, or if, you know, like, if only you can just make that commitment, then you can become a Christian. Now, fortunately, we were able to step in. But can you see what they were doing? They were equating being a Christian with having a particular type of ministry. And this bloke was being really put off. They were making it impossible for him to become a Christian. Because they were saying that to become a Christian means that you've got to become a certain type of person, doing a certain type of evangelism, a certain type of way. And believe me, that bloke just couldn't. And I'll tell you, I couldn't do what they do either. Now, if the Holy Spirit dropped on me tomorrow morning and said, Beres, go out and do that today, I could. I could. But can you see, unless the Holy Spirit enables you to, you can't. And we know from the Bible that he doesn't want everyone to be doing that particular thing necessarily. And strangely enough, just last night I had a guy came round, I'd never met him before, but he got in touch and he just wanted to kind of talk out a few difficulties that he was having. And part of the difficulties that he's in now, he's a lovely guy, really committed to the Lord, but part of the problem is, and he, he realises it now, is that the type of Christianity he got converted into, he kind of got saved in the very hyper, hyper charismatic Pentecostalist type thing, you see. And he can now look back and he realises that he was kicked out into doing evangelistic ministry in situations where there was no way he was <laughs> equipped to do it. But it went without saying in these churches 
I mean, they were sort of going into the most satanic of situations in twos or threes, just as a kind of a right, you know, sort of which occult group should we go to now and pray against? Can you see? And he looks back and he knows that he and his friends in that church, they were being pushed into situations where one, a baby Christian should in no way be under any circumstances and that even a mature Christian shouldn't be unless the Lord had specifically sent them in. Can you see the foolhardiness of this? And we've got to be very, very careful that we don't in any way at all, when it comes to evangelism, believe for one moment that you can only be faithful in your calling if you're out on the streets or out with the drunks or out with the prostitutes or out with the... Yeah, can you see? No, there are going to be those who are called to do it and they must do it. But none of us must feel obliged to be doing anything that in our hearts we know we're just not called for. All right. But, done that bit, and that's important. But, nevertheless, no escape clauses here. It is nevertheless true that even if not all of us are equipped to do the kind of stuff I've just been talking about, nevertheless, we are all called to speak to people about Jesus as God gives the opportunity. Now, we must be very clear on this. I've dealt with one extreme. Not every believer is supposed to be a super spiritual, zap someone on the back for Jesus evangelist, all right? And, and we've cleared that extreme. But also, the idea that, well, I mean, some Christians, they're just, you know, I mean, God is never going to want them to tell you about, about Jesus. That also is the other extreme, and it's completely wrong. And the rule is quite simply this. All of us, as God gives us the opportunity, and if you've been a Christian for 57 years now, and God's never given you the opportunity, then, no, that isn't true. You just haven't taken any yet. Can you see what I mean? But nevertheless, as God gives us the opportunity at work, at home, at coffee mornings, uh, you know, at the playgroup, you know, the mums with the kids, wherever, shopping in the supermarket, whatever, when God gives us the opportunity, we've got to be willing to take it. And you see, the most likely uh, kind of scenario where people, where the opportunity is going to be given to us is going to be that when your non-Christian friends, when our non-Christian friends and our neighbours, when they see how different we are, they are going to ask us. And there's your opportunity. Um, when I wasn't a full-time sort of Bible teacher, I, I, I mean, I, was, I did loads of different jobs, you know, sort of navvying, labouring, you know, I did insurance and stuff like that. And, um, and the, there was a kind of a principle that I settled in my heart in regards to this that I just felt was right from the Bible. And it was this, that unless it was an incredible exception, and in fact it never happened, it was clear in my heart, unless there was an incredible exception, I would never try and open up a discussion about the Lord with people I was working with. And it was for this reason. This principle applies to anyone with whom you have an ongoing relationship. Can you see? Whether it's people at work, neighbours, family, friends, or whatever. And the principle was this. I would never impose the gospel on them. 
but I prayed that they would see that I was different and they would ask me, and that's what happened. Can you see? Now, it doesn't mean that every non-Christian I've worked with say, hey, Beresford, what's different about you? You know, not at all. But the point is, there were those who did. And it was, I mean, just little things. I mean, for you know, hey, this guy, never heard him swear. Never told a fib. Hey, he's so honest with his money. He's going to declare that twit. Can you see? They're noticing all these things. Now, that's the point. If we are being faithful, then with people with whom we have an ongoing relationship, there is no need to make the running with them. Let them see by the example of your life and let them make the move to you. And you'll find that God will honour that in a very, very big way. So when the opportunity comes, take it. God will give you the opportunities if you are willing in your heart to take them. And we've got to realise as well that if we give in to feelings of shame or embarrassment about being a Christian, and there are some Christians who have a real struggle with this, the feelings, no problem. Having the feelings isn't wrong, it's giving in to them. Can you say so if someone says, oh, I hear you're a Christian, if you feel embarrassed and feel like you want to go through the floor, that's no problem. But if that feeling stops you from giving them the gospel, then that is a sin. Can you see? Because the point is that if we give in to embarrassment and shame and things like that, it is purely pride. Can you see? We're putting our own pride before their eternal salvation. And that is terrible when we do that. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What is there to be ashamed of or embarrassed about when it comes to knowing Jesus? All right, so I've kind of covered it quite deliberately really with the Christians in mind who aren't the outgoing types, they still have a part to play, but I don't want anyone to feel they've got to be doing something that just isn't in them. You don't have to be a real zap power evangelist, but nevertheless, take the opportunities that God gives. Right, that's for the timid ones. That's for the church mice. But you see, we need a word now for the people who naturally in the flesh, not because God's done a work of grace in them, but just because it's their character, you can't shut them up about Jesus. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's their character. There's nothing wrong with it. But the word to those people is this. Make sure that you are not using telling the gospel of Jesus to people merely as a platform to impress them, get centre stage and promote yourself. Can you see the dangers of that? For some Christians with that kind of personality, evangelism can just be the perfect excuse to be centre stage, to be the centre of attention. Now, if that's in your heart, and it may well be, simply give it to the Lord. Admit it's there. Won't go away overnight, but admit it's there, repent of it, and every time that rears its ugly head, just repent of it, and you'll find that God kind of deals with it. Go back to 2 Corinthians 4. We've already seen this first, but let's just see it again in this context. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, and it was when um, Paul said this. He said, For what we preach is not ourselves. Can you see? It's not ourselves, but with Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. And Paul was very, you know, he made sure that he wasn't preaching himself. You see, you can have two men 
preaching the gospel and one is telling people about Jesus and the other is using telling people about Jesus as an excuse to be in the limelight. Can you see how dangerous and subtle that is? Again, if the cap fits, you wear it. That's very important for us to sort out in our own hearts. And remember as well that when it comes to evangelism, the results are not our concern or responsibility. Don't worry about results. At the judgment seat of Christ, each one of us are going to be rewarded for our faithfulness. The rewards are for personal faithfulness to Jesus. They are not for results and they are not for success. We must preach the gospel, do our bit, whatever bit God gives us to do. But once you've done that faithfully, the results are not your concern. And you've got to understand that someone who is always leading people to Jesus, left, right and centre, because they've got that ministry, they are not spiritual for that reason. Is they? They can't help it. That's a spiritual gift. It's like me in Bible teaching. I mean, don't think, wow, isn't Beresford wonderful? He teaches the Bible. I can't help it. I mean, I, I couldn't do anything else. You, 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 you could sort of sellotape my mouth up and stand on me head, and I'd keep going. That's, you know, that's a gift. That's got nothing to do with faithfulness. That's got nothing to do with spirituality. So don't ever feel that because you might not have loads of results, don't let that bother you. Just make sure you're faithful. And I mean, if, 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 if you've told a hundred people the gospel since you've become a Christian, and you've done that faithfully, and you've prayed for them, and you've done that faithfully, if none of them have become a Christian, that means only one thing. You spoke to a hundred people who didn't want to become Christians at that point. That's all. Doesn't mean you failed, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. You don't have to go to Bible college to brush up on your presentation or anything like that. Can you see? Results are not our problem. But if you've spoken to a hundred people about Jesus since you've become a Christian and all of them have got converted, please don't think that makes you special. It doesn't. It doesn't. It just means that you've got a hundred people who were wanting to become Christians. Can you see? Very important to understand that. Don't bother, you know, don't get worried about results. They are not our problem. Our responsibility is simply to be faithful to what the Lord wants. Right, now let's, let's move on to this. We're talking about evangelism, and what I want to do is to kind of pull this all together and to make this point. We must evangelise as God leads us. But if we're going to evangelise, and I mean, I'm not, I mean, we're not now going to announce an evangelistic programme. I mean, I'm assuming that all of us are telling people about the gospel. If we meet them, you know, and God gives us that chance, no problem. We've had a few non-Christians come here recently, haven't they? All got converted, no problem, you see. But what I would say is this, we're evangelising, but in our evangelism, let's do it scripturally. You, you, you don't hear much said about this, but I think it's very, very important. Let's do our evangelism like the Bible says we should do it. Go to Matthew 28. The Great Commission, as it's called. Verse 18, uh, verse 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, two things there. First of all, Jesus says, Make disciples. 
We are not called to get converts. We are called to make disciples. And notice as well that Jesus said, make disciples, all right, and he says, teach them to observe, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Now, if you read that through carefully, Jesus is saying that the basis of them becoming a disciple is going to be based not just on the words they hear from us, but on their observation of our lives. Can you see? Teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. So what we're saying is, we're preaching the gospel and we're saying, and look at me and you'll see how it's done. Can you see? And then if we are in faithfulness to Jesus, they'll hear our words, but they'll observe it in our lives, and then they'll become disciples. But in the Bible, there are four things which must go together in evangelism, in all evangelism. So that if you've got someone and you're trying to reach them out to become a Christian, if they are to become a Christian, and if it's to be done in the way that the Bible says, there are four things that must come together in that process. And when you get these four things right, and when it, it goes without saying, we're going to diminish the chances of getting people who are merely converts. Can you see? Let's actually go through it. First of all, go to Matthew 4. Matthew 4. In our evangelism, what have we got to get across to people? Matthew 4 and verse 7. 17, sorry. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Now, the point here is kind of important because this is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I mean, practically the first thing he ever said when he opened his mouth, all right, in ministry. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Go to Acts 26. Acts 26 and verse 19, <clears throat> and this is Paul talking to King Agrippa. He says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those at Damascus, then at Jerusalem, and throughout all the country of Judah, Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds worthy of their repentance. This is the first element in our evangelism. We have got to be telling unbelievers that to become a Christian, they must repent. Now this word repent, the Greek word is metanoia, and its literal meaning is to perceive afterwards. Now I'll explain that. Comes from two different Greek words, meta, which means after and it implies change. Can you see? A before and an after. A change is implied. And the second word it comes from is noyo, which means to perceive. And noyo is from the noun nous, which is the Greek word for the mind and for the seat of the moral emotions. I, that part of man which does moral sort of uh, kind of working things out in a moral sense. And so what we've got, this is a moral word, 
It's a moral word. It's a taking stock of your life morally. And one way to translate it, remember, to perceive afterwards, would be literally to think again. That is what repentance is. It's to think again. And what it is, repentance, is when someone changes their mind about themselves and about their life and admit to their sinfulness and their need of change. So that's the first element in our evangelism, to bring people to repentance. And indeed, repentance carries on all the way through the Christian life. We have to live in repentance day to day. We have a change of mind, admit something was sin that we didn't before, and, you know, get that before God and agree with him. So there's the, the first thing, repentance. Right, number two, go to Mark. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. <clears throat> and again, the preaching of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. So there's number one again. Repent, and now one more. Repent and believe in the gospel. We've got to bring people to believe in Jesus. Now that Greek word, believe, pistuo, it means faith and trust. It doesn't mean simply believing a fact. That isn't the meaning of the Greek word. It means to act on the facts in commitment, obedience and surrender. Biblical faith isn't just believing. I mean, it goes without saying they believe, because no one's going to put their faith in Jesus if they didn't believe, can you see? But the point is, it's taking that step of commitment in trust as to what Jesus has done. I mean, the biblical meaning of the word to believe is in this sense. I met Belinda, I believed in her, we married. Can you see? It's not just belief that Blinder existed, it was a personal trust and you commit your life to it. That is what biblical faith is, alright? So that we're bringing people to repentance, realising that their lives need to be get, got right before God, and then bringing them into that trust that it's Jesus who's going to forgive their past, and it's Jesus who's going to start sorting their lives out from that day on. And all the way through the Bible, I mean Jesus, John 3, you know, God so loved the world, whoever sent his only son, whoever believes should not perish, but have eternal life. That personal step of trust in Jesus. Right, there's a third thing as well, and it's baptism in water. Go to John. Remember, I'm pleading here for biblical evangelism. John chapter 4. Again, right at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, John 4, and the first two verses. Now, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making more disciples baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. Right from the start of his ministry, when people came to Jesus and became believers, immediately they were baptized in water. Go to Acts 12. This is something we've labored long and hard here, but we're going to keep going on it. It's tremendously important. Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. Philip in Samaria, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men 
and women. They became Christians and as part of that process of becoming Christians, they were baptised in water. Go over into verse 35, Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture he told him the good news of Jesus. And as they went along the road they came to some water and the eunuch said, See here is water, what is to prevent my being baptised? And of course we know that Philip said nothing and he immediately baptised him. Go over into chapter 9 verse 18, the conversion of Paul the Apostle. We read this, and immediately, this is Paul when he got converted, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight, then he rose and was baptised and took food and was strengthened. No waiting around here, the moment Paul had it clear in his head that Jesus was Lord and that he was going to become a Christian, Ananias comes to him, sorts the problem out, and immediately he gets baptised. Um, go over into chapter 10, verse 47. So as when the Gentiles were converted in the house of Cornelius, and Peter, he's preaching to them, the Holy Spirit comes down on them. He says, can anyone forbid water for baptising these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And immediately they're baptised in water in the name of the Lord. Go over into verse 32. Sorry, chapter 16 and verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. And when she was baptised with her household, no messing about. Go over to verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptised at once with all his family, the Philippian jailer. Gets converted and immediately he's baptised. Can you see, biblical evangelism, evangelism, the process whereby you're telling someone about Jesus, and if the process is completed, they want to respond, they become Christians. Now the process of evangelism and bringing someone to Jesus, we've seen thus far, is repentance in their life morally, it's trusting Jesus in the personal way that he's going to deal with them, no problem, and forgive them, and then thirdly, it's being baptised in water. Being baptised in water is part of the process of becoming a Christian. It doesn't mean that someone isn't a Christian if they haven't been baptised in water. All that means is that the believers who brought them to the Lord didn't do their job properly. But biblically, normatively, being baptised in water is part of the process of becoming a Christian. And now, number four, the fourth aspect of the process is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Go back to John 1. John 1, verse 29, first of all. The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Number one function that Jesus came to do, save us. Alright, no problem. But now go down into verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. Can you see, Jesus is the forgiver of sins and he is the baptised with the Holy Spirit. The two go together. Go back to the Acts. Again, see this in the early church. 
We're taking our example from them because it's recorded in the Bible. Acts chapter 8 and verse 14. Back to Philip in Samaria. <coughs> so Philip's done his bit. They've got converted and stuff like that. And they've got baptised in water. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Word got back to the apostles. Oh great! Loads of people converted in Samaria. Terrific. Huh? Oh, what? They haven't been baptised in the Spirit? Ugh. Spoon. Straight there. Can you see? Lay hands on them. Get them baptised with the Spirit. As soon as possible, after becoming Christians. Go down into verse 17. Oh, sorry, chapter 9 and verse 17. Again, this is Paul the Apostle. We've seen that he was baptised in water. But verse 17... Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So here, within three days of Paul having been converted, and remember, he's been struck blind, so there wasn't much he could do. The Lord heals him now, all right? He's baptised with the Holy Spirit, and he's baptised in water, right at the beginning of his Christian life. Acts chapter 10 and verse 44 back to the house of Cornelius and the Gentiles. While Peter was still saying this, I mean here, Peter's in the middle of his sermon. You know, I mean he hadn't even got to the appeal. He's in the middle of the sermon. While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Can you see that? Here the Gentiles have been converted and they're baptised in the Holy Spirit and as soon as Peter says sees that they're baptised in the Spirit he says, right lads, baptism in water. Now can you see that is biblical evangelism? And that when we're talking to people, if people say, look, okay, well you've got me, yeah, this, Jesus, yeah, what do I do? How do I become a Christian? This is what we tell them, that they must repent. Obviously, it goes without saying that they're trusting Jesus, or they wouldn't be saying, you know, how can I trust you see? And then baptise them in water and get them baptised with the Spirit. As fast as possible. Let's actually see when the early church got into a situation where they were asked that exact question. What do you do if somebody says, I want to become a Christian? What do you do? Go to Acts chapter 2. And this is the first ever evangelistic sermon from the early church. The first ever. Alright? Acts 2 verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Can you see? They've heard the gospel in the power of the Spirit. They're under conviction. They're cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? So they're saying, oh, what do we do about this? We believe you. Yeah, we're sinners. What do we do about this? Now, look what Peter says. Peter said to them, and it doesn't mention believe here, because it goes without saying, but he says, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need to say believe, because they already do. But can you see the four things there? Repentance, faith, 
baptism in the water and baptism with the Holy Spirit. That is normative biblical evangelism and that is what we must make sure we are doing as the Lord brings non-Christians to us and takes us to other non-Christians as well. <coughs> now drawing to a close but I've, I've, I've got to I mean one, one can't really sort of do a thing on evangelism without kind of a, a, at least saying something about kind of all the big national evangelistic campaigns that are going on all the time. I mean, there's one every year. And, uh, and I, I, I suppose, really, I can't, do, you know, sort of dodge this. I've got to explain my own sort of reticence and caution about it, including the Billy Graham crusade at the moment. And I'm cautious and I'm reticent about the whole thing. And it's for these reasons. First of all, national evangelism, these big campaigns that are going on, they are totally compromised biblically. We have just seen what biblical evangelism is. And yet at these campaigns, well for a start, baptism in water and baptism with the Spirit is totally left out. And I'll tell you why. Because these campaigns are ecumenically backed. Nothing can be said or done at the campaigns that might offend the false teaching of any of the churches that are backing it. So how can you preach baptism in water when you're being backed by the Anglican Church? Do you see the problem? It's absolutely hopeless. How can you bring people to Jesus and then lay hands on them so that they're baptised in the Holy Spirit when you're being backed by churches which believe that's of the devil? Can you see the problem? So with these big national things, because they're ecumenical, because they're all the churches coming together to do it, you've got to find the lowest common denominator for everyone to agree on. And in the process, I'll tell you what you're doing, you're chucking out various aspects of what the Word of God says. And you're saying, us coming together is more important than God getting his way. Lord, we can do this and this, but sorry, Lord, no, can't do that, because uh, Methodists will get upset. Now, that is why evangelism like that is totally 100% compromised biblically. You cannot be part of that and be faithful to what the Bible teaches about evangelism. All right. Now let me say as well that when we're talking about these national campaigns, one of the things that you're going to hear if you read the Christian press and, and, and talk to Christians, you are going to be hearing an awful lot for the next 13 years about something called Evangelism 2000. Has anyone heard of this already? Evangelism 2000, it's the next big drive evangelistically that's coming up. Only this is going to be worldwide and already many, many leaders, including from house churches, are getting ready for this. They've dived in and the preparation is underway. Now let me tell you what this vision for Evangelism 2000 is. It's a vision that apparently has been given by the Holy Spirit, although I'll show you in a moment how that can't be possible. It's a vision that has been given, supposedly from the Holy Spirit, that the church is going to present Jesus uh, on the year 2000 for his 2000th birthday present, a world that is more Christian than non-Christian. 
Now that is the vision that's been given. And all our national leaders, right across the board, anyone who's anyone, is getting into Evangelism 2000. Now I'll tell you the two reasons, alright? One, well, firstly, the Bible does not in any way lead us to believe that the world is going to get more and more Christian, quite the opposite. I'm expecting a, a few million conversions, yes. But Jesus said, few there be. The idea of a world that is more Christian than non-Christian makes a mockery of the teaching of the Bible about the end times. When Paul says it's going to get worse and worse and worse. If the world was 65% Christian by the year 2000, it would be better than it was in New Testament times. Paul says it's going to get worse. So there's the biblical reason, alright, in that sense. But also, this vision was given to a man called Tom Forrest. And it's Tom Forrest and the church that he's in who are the main driving force behind it. Tom Forrest is an Orthodox Catholic priest. And the main thrust of Evangelism 2000 is that it's the Catholic Church. To be part of Evangelism 2000 is to go arm in arm with the Catholic Church. Now, this is what is so worrying. Can you see? All this national and, and kind of worldwide evangelism, it's going hand in hand with all the churches coming together, regardless of what the Bible says about doctrinal purity and regardless of what the Bible says about, you know, the practices that churches are and aren't supposed to be actually doing. So therefore, can you see? It is absolutely crazy. It is so compromised biblically that I find very hard to have anything to do with it. But having said that, I mean somebody gonna say, you know, but Beresford, lots of people are converted. It's got to be right. Now comment number one, lots of people have been converted. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I mean if God can speak through Balaam's ass, then God can bring people to Jesus through unscriptural evangelism. And that is the grace of God. He'll use whatever he can get. And I am thrilled when people get converted. Paul, at one point, writes about people who were preaching the gospel from the motive of making things harder for him in prison. And Paul says, but anyhow, he says, regardless they're doing it for all the wrong reasons, he says, but insofar as the gospel is preached, I'm happy. So that, praise the Lord, if someone gets converted, that's fantastic. But you see, my argument is always this. If people get converted when we do it wrong, how many more are going to be converted when we do it right? Can you see? So it's a silly argument, people have got converted, therefore it must be right. Argument from experience, no, we always argue from the Bible. But that brings me on to the second thing as well. Because you see, biblical evangelism is always local church based with the one exception of when they were breaking new ground. I mean, when, when a team set off into Samaria who, who, who didn't have a church, for you know, there wasn't a church there, obviously it wasn't local church based there, it was apostolic, breaking new ground. But apart from that, biblical evangelism was always local church based. And you see, the thing is that you could know that these people who have been brought to the Lord, whether it's through what the church is doing or just the members of the church, you know, gossiping the gospel at work, the point is, the people who brought them to the Lord also brought them into their local church. Can you see how important that is? I mean, look at the fiasco, the administrative nightmare of follow-up work on these national missions. It's a nightmare. 
absolute nightmare. And, and I'll tell you what, it's a joke as well. I mean, some of the stories that you come off with, Denzel was talking to me, this killed me. And this just happened during this Billy Graham thing, all right? And there was a couple who were in a house group in the church Denzel and Debbie used to go to. And this couple were in that house group that Denzel and Debbie used to be in, all right? Now, Denzel and Debbie have left the church, but Denzel went along to that house group. Four people. And Denz went back to that house group just a few days ago. Now, what happened was, this, these four people in this house group, they'd been there for yonks. They got nowhere spiritually. You know, standard kind of dead church. All right? They got absolutely nowhere. So they went along to Billy Graham. Well, as it transpires, they responded at the Billy Graham thing. And so the councillors took their kind of names and addresses. And it goes through the system. And then what? eventually you get a letter telling the inquirer which nurture group they're going to be put in. So these people, they got their nurture cards. And do you know where their nurture group was? It was the group they started up in in that dead church. And Denzel went there. And there they were. Can, can, can you see the joke of it? But when evangelism is local church-based, there is no follow-up problem because you bring the people you've led to Jesus into your very own family of the church. And there's something else as well. You see, these evangelistic things that happen, it's great that people get converted, but look at the kind of churches we're putting new Christians into where they're going to start their life surrounded by false teaching, by wrong church tradition, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, a good farmer does not bring a harvest in and then store it in a barn that's falling down. Can you see? And that's the emphasis today. God is saying, look, I want the barns built. Build me the barns, then we'll go out and get the harvest. And there's something else as well, because... I mean, one of the pains about these big national evangelistic things that go on, and I, it's great people get converted, but every Christian you meet wants to know if you're involved. And I'll tell you, woe betide you if you're not. I mean, it's earwigging after earwigging from people, because I say, no, I'm not involved. And there's this look of horror and disapproval. And I've said to them, look, I don't need to be involved. I've, why not? Well, I don't need to go to an evangelistic thing. I'm a Christian. But you take non-Christians with you. Why do I need to take non-Christians to Billy Graham? I can bring them here and they get converted. Why do I need Billy Graham? And here's the point. The Billy Graham and all these national missions, not just good old Billy, I mean, I was chatting to him on the phone just the other night. and <laughs> Not really. Um, yeah, but the point is that it's an admission by the churches that their members, the believers, they can't take their non-Christian friends to their churches. They'll be put off. They won't get converted. But bring Billy Graham over and you've got neutral ground to take them to and there they might get converted. But it's a tragedy. After they've got converted, you're supposed to then take them back to your church and it's the very church you didn't dare take them to before they got converted and so you needed a Billy Graham crusade. Now, can you see the stupidity of that? It's an open admission that the church is not as Jesus wants. My burden is for every believer to be in a church, that if they get a non-Christian interested, where do they take them? They bring them along to their church. 
That is what we want. But so many believers are in churches where they wouldn't dare take a non-Christian. So therefore we need Billy Graham instead. And you see all this effort that's being put in by the churches to national evangelism is going in the wrong direction. You build the barns before you bring the harvest in. And it's foolhardiness to be investing so much time on the harvest when it's going to go into run-down barns and it's just going to rot away because there's no protection from the elements and the weather. The harvest is just going to rot. So then, we as Christians in our evangelism, we're, we're, we're birthing people. We're, we're midwives. And when a child is born into a family, which is what a new conversion is in, in the church, when someone becomes a Christian, they're born into the family, is that a family gives birth to children in its own likeness. So can you see how important it is that we are right with God, individually and as a church? And then we'll know that we're bringing baby Christians into a good family, into a good church, and they're going to be brought up in our likeness, in faithfulness to God, not being led up the spout by false teaching and wrong practice or whatever. We have got to make sure that we get it absolutely right. Two, two scriptures just to end. First of all, Romans 15. Romans 15. Verse 18, Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed and by the power of signs and wonders. Now, I believe this. It's by word and deed. We mustn't just tell people the gospel. We've got to live it. But if we live it and if we are faithful in telling it, then God will add the power. God will add the miracles. We can't do that. We can live and we can speak in faithfulness to God. And if we do what we can do, then God will do what we can't do. And the miracles and the signs and wonders will come. Just go over into Acts 2. Acts chapter 2, our last verse. Just start from verse 43. This is the type of church that people converted through us. This is the type of church I want them to come into. This is our burden here for us. Listen to this. 43. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. 